happy Father's Day, of course. Uh, sent my dad a big uh, happy Father's Day text. Hope it's uh, going to be a good Father's Day for everybody here. And um, glad to, to see you all this morning. Certainly want to continue to keep the Lewises in prayer. And um, everybody who is struggling at this time we know that uh, some of the concerns of the pandemic the past year and a half are still ongoing and so we want to continue to keep all of that in prayer this morning though i want to talk about something that's going to factor into uh what i'm going to talk about this evening although i don't want to give everything away just yet but this morning um, we're going to talk about a miraculous sign performed by moses one that you're all familiar with, and it's found in Exodus chapter 7. Um, Exodus chapter 7. We're not going to start there this morning. Instead, we're going to start in um, Psalm 82. We're going to start in Psalm 82. Now, this is a psalm that there has been much written about, and there is. It could possibly be read in several different ways, and I don't want to get into all of that this morning, and I don't plan to do a complete breakdown of this psalm. It would take an entire sermon of its own. But I think this psalm establishes an important idea to understanding Exodus 7, so let's read. Psalm 82 says, God takes his stand in his own congregation, reading from the New American Standard Version, He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. The foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is thou who dost possess all the nations. There is this image that's painted in this psalm of God in a divine council setting, God among all his divine created beings, um, at least that's the image that the psalm begins on. And by the end of the psalm, we come to understand, I think, that, that, that the psalm is addressing human beings, uh, at least as much as it may be addressing uh, members of, of, a, of a divine council, and that is uh, the explanation that Jesus gives in, in, in John chapter 10, Uh, which is an interesting study in and of itself. Um, So the idea here is God signals in in verse 1, I'm about to pronounce a judgment. And God in this psalm acts as accuser and as judge. And so God says to the rulers of the earth, essentially, you have done a poor job. You've given partiality to the wicked. You have not vindicated the weak and the fatherless. Justice is not carried out. And the weak and the needy fall by the wayside. They need to be delivered out of the hand of the wicked. And because of this, there's a general 
ignorance, a general lack of understanding that goes about in the world. And so the judgment is pronounced in verses 6 and 7 that the kings of earth will fall away, that all must die and pass away, and that God is to judge the earth before all the nations belong to him. There's an idea in this psalm that those who rule over uh, the nations of the earth are given their authority by God, and that's not an idea that's just in this psalm. It's throughout the, the, the scriptures. But the idea there is that they bear a, an, an extra responsibility, an extra burden, an extra fear. That is that uh, if they manage poorly what has been given to them by the Lord, they fall into the judgment, into the punishment of an angry, well, a jealous God, a God who is um, desirous of genuine worship, of devotion to him. And so that brings us to what we want to talk about today, Exodus 7, which concerns directly one of the rulers of the earth who has done exactly what is described in that psalm, has let wickedness prosper, has not given proper justice, has not paid due homage to God. Pharaoh of Egypt, we see in, Egypt, in Exodus chapter 7. And so, let's begin reading Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden... Excuse me. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts and my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch my hand out on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So at many times in scripture, you'll see this pattern where God, as always, is ruling sovereign over all the earth and all of the affairs of the earth. But he will often, for our benefit, position himself um, with a kind of earthly co-regent or one who is his representative on earth or one who stands in his place on earth. And you see this pattern uh, with, with, uh, with the patriarchs, with Abraham, with Moses, uh, with David to some extent. Um, and, and there could certainly be other examples that you could, you could look to, um, uh, more minor examples. But it's very much the case this, this way with Moses, which is not to say that Moses is you know, uh, some perfect person or that we should put Moses on some grand pedestal uh, where we regard him as you know, uh, above human. It's not what, what, what this idea means, but what it means is God has always sought the cooperation of human beings. God always wants human beings involved in his plan. And so God, throughout the Old Testament, at, at various times will have human beings model different aspects of God's character in their own 
small, feeble ways, using what strengths and abilities they have already. This is what God is doing with Moses when he says in 7 verse 1, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So God tells Moses he will be to Pharaoh as God, and Aaron will be his prophet. So when you picture Moses and Aaron going before Pharaoh, uh, you should picture uh, Moses approaching the king, either standing or sitting or whatever position he's in. He's in silence the entire time. Aaron speaks for him, or he will tell Aaron what to speak, and then Aaron will speak it to the Pharaoh. That's, it's, it's something that I, that I never really uh, got, got through to me until studying it just this week, how bizarre that must have, have seemed to Pharaoh. But the idea is, and we'll see this when the signs are performed, that Moses speaks the action to, Pharaoh, to Aaron and says, this will be done, and then Pharaoh does it, and it is done. In the same way that when we ask God for something, and we, in belief, we receive it. Uh, from the word of God. Um, so, Moses is approaching the king, but Aaron is going before Moses and speaking uh, to Pharaoh. Think about the sort of intimidation factor that must have been there too, right? It's, it's like um, the, the, uh, the Hebrews will bring their prophet to you, but their prophet won't actually speak to you. Their prophet needs a prophet because their prophet has spoken to God. And he's... He's not going to uh, go before the Pharaoh directly. So, okay, so uh, further, Aaron and Moses' mission is to declare God's judgment to Pharaoh. That's what God tells Moses. And God tells Moses at, several, at many points in this story what's going to happen before it happens. And here God explains to Moses that for reasons that are his own, he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And he said, but he gives him part of, of, of his reasoning, which is that it's going to allow for the fame of his signs and the power of the God that Moses serves to spread in Egypt and in all the world. And we see the effects of that even into you know, the book of Joshua when the inhabitants of Canaan are, are very afraid of, of the God of the Hebrews who brought them out of Egypt. So uh, with all that being said, and the dynamics established here uh, of how this uh, prof prophet to king relationship is going to work. Um, let's move ahead to verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh so that it may turn into a serpent. Okay, so again we see this dynamic at play to perform a sign, to do a miracle, like turning a, a rod into a serpent, Moses, who is standing in metaphorically for God, he speaks the action to Aaron. Aaron carries out the action uh, as the prophet or as the mouthpiece, right? Then the, the original Hebrew word for prophet meant something like mouthpiece, one who uh, is a vessel for the, the words of God uh, to come into the world. And so Moses, um, Mo Moses speaks to Aaron, and Aaron speaks to Pharaoh. And then in verse 10, So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh called 
for the wise men and the sorcerers and they too, the soothsayers or magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So the abilities of the Egyptian priests are more than I've heard it argued before is that this, this is all just sleight of hand. No, I think they channeled real spiritual power. It was probably demonic power that they were working with. But they could perform these miraculous signs. But the power did not emanate from the one true God, the most high God, Yahweh God. And that this is shown, I think, in the swallowing of the Egyptian you know, rods that have been turned into serpents by Aaron's snake, right? God says, I see your magic trick or whatever you want to call it, and I swallow that up. I consume that. I am greater than that. I'm greater than the power that you are used to, uh, you know, consorting with, Pharaoh of Egypt. I'm greater. I'm greater than your gods. I'm greater than your priests. Uh, and so you must do my will. Verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He did not listen to them just as the Lord had said. God said he's not going to listen to you. And sure enough, he doesn't. Then in verse 14, we have the beginning of this incident that I want to really focus on this morning. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning just as he is going out to the water and position yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile and you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. So we should note that the Nile is of utmost importance to the Egyptians economically and religiously. Everything in their society basically depends on the Nile. And the Pharaoh bathing in the Nile in the morning, I think would have carried religious significance. Um, the, the Nile, uh, it was not uncommon um, uh, that it, it, bathing in it carried this idea uh, of the cleansing power of, of the river. And anytime you have a society that's pinned to a specific river like that, um, sometimes the, the, the river itself will take on a kind of religious significance. I think this was the case in Egypt. There was likely a designated place near the royal complex, near the palace, where uh, Pharaoh would, would ceremonially bathe in the Nile. And this is where God tells Moses to go and lay in wait for Pharaoh. It's kind of an ambush, right? So imagine the scene. Pharaoh comes out to bathe with his royal attendants around him. He's, you know, because he travels with an entourage. He's the Pharaoh. And who should be there but Moses, that crazy Hebrew prophet. And keep in mind, Moses and Aaron have already appeared to Pharaoh before, and Pharaoh's already told him he won't let them go. And again, Moses, as we'll see when he carries out this sign, isn't the one doing the speaking. He tells Aaron, stick, you know, uh, you know, put your staff over the water and the sign is performed. Verse 16, you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go 
so that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened up to now. This is what the Lord says. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I am going to strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. Then the fish that are in the Nile will die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will no longer be able to drink water from the Nile. So the Nile provided the Egyptians, I mean, just from an economic standpoint, just from a, the continuation of life uh, and survival in Egypt, um, the Nile gave the Egyptians fresh water for human consumption. The Nile watered their livestock. The Nile provided freshwater fish for human consumption. The Nile, and this is hugely important, for their agriculture, the Nile, and particularly the Nile's predictability, um, helped them to uh, you know, account for how, how much uh, crop they could expect based off last year's crop. Uh, and based on the flood patterns of the Nile. Um, so everything in terms of their economic machine, in terms of their survival, depended on the Nile being a source of fresh water and flooding predictably in order to uh, irrigate their fields and, and make their land fertile. So the lesson is clear. The gods of the Egyptians are not powerful over the Nile as was supposed by the Egyptians. But the Lord God is powerful over all the elements of nature. And the withdrawal of his blessing brings death and disaster and destruction, which is exactly what happens to the Egyptians with their precious Nile. The fish that are in the Nile will die, the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will not be able to find drinking water. Like all the rest of these plagues, the effects are not just going to be felt by Pharaoh, but by all Egyptians. And it, I think this demonstrates what's meant when it's said that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It demonstrates the extent of that hardness. Uh, it was, sometimes we think about Pharaoh in the Exodus stories as being motivated only by you know, stubborn hatred or prejudice or, or, or something like that. Uh, against the Hebrew people specifically. But it seems that, that uh, Pharaoh was equally callous toward all human suffering um, in, in the sense that um, this is going to affect all of his people. And we're going to see the difference between how it affects Pharaoh and how it affects the, the everyday people. But this is setting Pharaoh in opposition to the character of God, character of Yahweh, who is compassionate toward all, who longs for all to be saved, as opposed to the callousness we find with Pharaoh and so often with the rulers of this world. Continuing on to verse 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over their streams, over the, their pools, and over their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood, and that there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water, 
that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned into blood. Then the fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the soothsayer priests of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, as he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Okay, so let's seize on something here. When Aaron turned his rod into a serpent, Pharaoh had his magicians replicate that sign. When Moses, through Aaron, turns the Nile into blood, Pharaoh's also going to have his magicians replicate that sign. But in both of these instances, Pharaoh is choosing not to see the truth that God is trying to reveal to him. And again, this is something that I think shows us what is meant when it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, or what it means to be hard-hearted. What we choose to focus on is of supreme importance to the outcomes of our spiritual life. So Pharaoh is focused on approximating these miracles as a way of discounting them, of saying, well, my guys can do what you've done, so it must not be that significant. It must not be that important. This God must not be uh, one that I must listen to. Even though there are clear indications of the differences between the two signs. Aaron's uh, serpent swallows all the other serpents. Uh, Pharaoh's magicians might have been able to take a container of water and turn it into blood or some blood-like substance. They didn't turn the whole river into, into blood, though. You can only do that once. Uh, it's already blood a, a, at that point. Um, and so um, Pharaoh chooses to focus on the fact that his magicians can do this instead of the fact that the signs that are performed by Moses and Aaron are obviously greater than the ones that his magicians are performing. Instead of understanding the signs that Moses is, uh, is performing, Pharaoh's just worried about approximating them. And I think we can fall into something like this same trap when we try to understand Jesus. So a lot of times we want a lot of the spiritual juice and power that Jesus has to offer, and he does offer those things to us um, in, in a deep spiritual sense. He gives us a, a peace and a confidence that passes understanding. But in order to, to get to that level, we first have to come to him seeking understanding, seeking truth, seeking to see him exactly as he is and not any other way. Pharaoh was concerned with seeing things the way he wanted to see them, with maintaining the illusion of, of his power and his greatness and his glory. He was considered to be a living God or something like it in his, in his culture. And that glory was maintained constantly. God comes along and pops holes in the glory that men create for themselves. He's here to let the air out of uh, you know, everybody's ego balloon, so to speak. Especially those who are in power here in this world. So... Um, then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, 
because they could not drink from the water of the Nile. So here I think we see a powerful contrast between the powerful and the powerless. Pharaoh's unconcerned at this point. And he's Pharaoh. He can, get, uh, he can get water from himself, probably from anywhere in the known world that Egypt would have had trade with at that time. There's, no, there's you know, never going to be a shortage of fresh water and food for the Pharaoh in this society, in much the same way that you know, we could be uh, in the opening stages of nuclear war and the president is still going to get food and water in a bunker somewhere. Well, it's the same thing for Pharaoh. He's going to have his needs met. That's not a question. But while he's in his house, unconcerned, his people are digging on the banks of the Nile, trying to find underground streams of water that haven't been affected by this plague. That's how desperate people are for fresh water. Take away the main source of fresh water in a region that is in the middle of a desert otherwise, well, um, people are going to have struggles to survive. Verse 25, seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Okay, so what do we make of this? Um, each of the seven, or each of the ten plagues obviously has its own message that it sends to the Egyptian society, and collectively they send a huge message of God's power and God's sovereignty and God's plan to rescue his people and to make a way for them. I think many of the miracles of Christ are directly connected with signs that Moses performed. You can't, you know, uh, I wouldn't ever try to, you know, line these up directly one-to-one, you know, in every case. Uh, Clearly, there are lots of things that Jesus did that are quite unlike things that Moses did, and there are incidents in Moses' life that you can't find a neat parallel with in Jesus' life. But particularly when it comes to signs performed, I think there is are clear parallels to be drawn. Um, I think this is one such instance. Um, Moses declared the judgment of God on Pharaoh and performed this sign to prove it. He turned the Nile into blood, and in doing so, he crippled the enemy of God. But it's uh, it's a harsh thing. It's a thing associated with death and suffering to turn a whole river into blood. It's a punishment. It's a judgment. And when Christ comes, he has a different but also similar relationship with water. His message is called the water of life, and it is said to make within us a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. He associates his blood with true wine, with the fruit of the vine, with true drink, that which restores, that which brings one into fellowship with God. So Jesus is going to come and is going to do something very similar uh, in John chapter 2. That's what we're going to talk about this evening is Jesus' first sign, the wedding at Cana and turning water into wine in John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. But I think these two events are meant to be parallel. 
while Moses' sign is bitter and poisonous, Christ's sign is sweet to the hearing and to the tasting. This is a contrast you can generally hold up between Moses and Christ. Christ is decidedly more pleasant, however you know, um, highly we might speak of Moses. Christ's message is higher. But they are alike in that both declare the judgments of God, both stand as a judge at certain points, both stand in the place of God, I would say Christ perfectly standing in the place of God as God, as a perfect demonstration of all of God's character, not just bits and pieces of it, piecemeal at a time. But Christ, like Moses, is a judge, but unlike Christ, or unlike Moses, rather, Christ will be the final judge of all the sons of God. To tie it back to the image that you see that we touched on in the beginning in Psalm 81, of God standing in the assembly of all the sons of God and declaring his judgment, bringing his accusation and then declaring his judgment. Well, God brought his accusation against Pharaoh of Egypt and he declared his judgment. And it began with this sign of turning water into blood. It spelled the beginning of the end, the power of Egypt, which oppressed God's people. But we're going to talk this evening about how when Christ comes and turns water into wine, it's the beginning of a new life for us all, all of us who are Christians, and that Christ comes bringing gifts of life and grace and compassion for all of us as opposed to pain and death and suffering to bring about the aims of God. God's will was sovereign and, and supreme in the time of, of Moses. It was in the time of Christ and it will be forever until the Lord returns and he can bring about his plans in any way that he desires. But we should take to heart that with human messengers of God, there is always some imperfection, there is always some flaw, there is always some dimension of their character which does not fully translate over to the spiritual lessons we're supposed to learn from them about God. With Christ, there is no such defect. He is the perfect lamb offered for you and me, and not just offered, but demonstrated a full life for us to emulate, for us to walk after, for us to spend our life studying, seeking all the spiritual juice we can squeeze out of it. I didn't even mean to make that pun there. We are going to talk about juice this evening with turning water into wine. Okay, so uh, I hope that uh, all that was, was helpful. I uh, hope uh, at least anyway it was a nice refresher over uh, this familiar story we, we know from the Old Testament. We probably learned it in, in Bible school class way back when. But it's always good to re-examine these stories, especially in light of what's revealed in Christ. So tonight, if you make it back, we're going to look at John 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, and what that incident means, what that sign means for us as Christians. But if you are here and you have not been 
washed in the blood of, of Christ. If you uh, have not taken your place in that flood, which covers all sins, and from which you can be raised a new creature, we ask, we beg that you do that today. And if you are a Christian and you uh, have been brought into his covenant, but you've lost sight of what that covenant means and you want to feel restored in it, we can help to accommodate that. If you have general spiritual needs or just need support and prayer, we can help make that happen for you. We long to uplift our brothers in any way we can. And so... If any have need, we should feel no hesitation to speak it. We now live in a time where there is no division between us and, and the powers that rule us and, and God. We are each given roles to play in this world, but here is our family. And our family is in communion with the powers of heaven which are working all things together to bring the victory to us in Christ, and to bring all things in subjection to the Father. That's what we're after, going home, dwelling in perfect union with God. If any need any help or any assistance, make that known while we stand and sing. Take time to be holy, speak off with thy Lord.